Sisters, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're reading in chapter 13, starting at verse 1 through until verse 15. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, Will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, If you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So Cyprus is a real place, a real island, still there. In 1960, Cyprus became independent of Britain. It had been a crown colony since 1925. And when it became independent, it came to be known as the Republic of Cyprus. The long-standing conflict between the Greek Cypriot majority and the Turkish Cypriot minority and an invasion of the island by Turkish troops in 1974 produced an actual, though internationally unrecognized, partition of the island and led to the establishment in 1975 of a de facto Turkish Cypriot state in the northern one-third of the country. The Turkish Cypriot state made a unilateral declaration of independence in 1983 and adopted the name Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. Its independence was recognized only by Turkey. You can see there in your sermon notes uh, a look at this island, Cyprus. You can see there the northern third is the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. And then the southern two-thirds is the Republic of Cyprus. And you can see there in the bottom right-hand corner of that picture that the island sits in the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea not far from Tarsus to the north, not far from Antioch to the east. Currently, there are 1.26 million people 
on the island of Cyprus. It's one of the largest islands. I think it's the third largest island in the Mediterranean. There are two official languages, Greek and Turkish, as you might guess. It, uh, according to Operation World, is 72.4% Christian, but only 0.8% evangelical. The Christians are largely Greek Orthodox there in southern Cyprus. Apparently, about 12% of the nation remains unevangelized. So think of it. At this point in time, this island where the gospel arrived and was preached throughout the island to this day, at this time, currently, 12% of this very island remains unevangelized. So in today's text, we see the Holy Spirit overseeing this mission to Cyprus. And we see Paul and Barnabas preaching to Jews and to Gentiles throughout the island. We see the power and the danger of the demonic here in today's text. And we see, praise be to God, the power of God to subdue all resistance to the gospel and to bring faith to even pagan Roman rulers. We'll go through the text verse by verse as usual. We'll see how they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. We'll discuss a bit about their travel from Antioch to Seleucia and then by water to Salamis. There's some sailors in the room who probably think a lot about that. And they preached in the eastern city uh, there in Salamis to the synagogues. John Mark was with them as their helper. And then they travel across by land from the eastern edge of the country to the western edge from Salamis to Paphos. Exactly how they traveled, was it on foot the whole time or did they have some other way? We don't know. And then we'll look at Bar-Jesus, this one who's also called Elemis, and how he opposes the gospel We'll look at his, the description of him, what kind of man he was. And then we'll look at Sergius Paulus and how he was seeking the word of God as an intelligent man. And then Saul, for the first time called Paul, is filled with the Holy Spirit and responds to this opposition to the gospel under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And <clears throat> we see the judgment of God comes upon this man who's not so wise, Elemas, and then Gospel conquest, Sergius Paulius believes the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's dive in. The text says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, Barnabas and Saul are not sent according to their own will or even according to the will of the church at Antioch. They are sent by the Lord God via the work of the Holy Spirit. This means that they would be walking into the good works prepared beforehand for them by God. The Lord led them on this ministry. Luke's first comment of his report on the missionary work of Barnabas and Saul emphasizes again the initiative of God. It is the Holy Spirit who sent out the two missionaries. And this is a crucial thing for all Christians to understand. The Lord God initiates and takes the gospel. The Lord God is the one who builds his kingdom. Next we see their travel from Antioch to Seleucia and then to Salamis. You see there on the map how from Antioch they would go over land down to Seleucia, and then from Seleucia they would take uh, a sailing vessel from there to Cyprus. And you can see Salamis there on the eastern coast of Cyprus. Their travels would include both over land and over sea. And I want us to remember that part of our reading should include the awareness of the grueling aspects of their travels. Don't just read over these texts about their travels and see them as unimportant narrative points. These men sacrificed because of their love for Christ. Commentary says they travel 16 miles from Antioch to Seleucia where they embark on a ship and sail to Cyprus a distance of about 100 kilometers. That's about 62 miles that they would have sailed. Seleucia was one of the most important harbor cities on the Syrian coast with an artificial inner and an outer harbor which served as a base for the imperial Roman fleet at that time. Let's learn a little bit more about the island of Cyprus at that time and a little bit of its history leading up to that moment. This island, only 60 miles from the Syrian coast, was annexed by the Romans in 58 BC and became the the, the Roman province of Cyprus in about 30 BC. 
The dry and hot summers of Cyprus were dreaded in antiquity. The precipitation was among the lowest in the Mediterranean region. The copper that was mined on the slopes of Mount Trudos was named after the island. Greek, Kypros, has to do with copper. Cyprus was divided into the four districts of Paphos, Salamis, and Amethos on the south coast, and Lapathos on the north coast. Jews lived on Cyprus at least since the second century B.C. We see that according to First Maccabeus. In 30 B.C., Augustus Caesar granted half of the income from the Cypriot copper mines to Herod I and left the other half for Herod to administer. In the first century, Philo described Cyprus as full of Jewish colonies. There were evidently several synagogues in Salamis, as we'll see in today's text. So it can be assumed that there was a Jewish community in Paphos as well. Some Jews had become quite wealthy. According to a rabbinic text, the Jews of Cyprus regularly donated wine for the temple in Jerusalem that was used for the incense offering on the Day of Atonement. Of course, we recall Barnabas is from Cyprus and he had lands that he had sold as an example and gave to the apostles. We can speculate the Holy Spirit used Barnabas' connection and familiarity with his homeland as part of how the Holy Spirit led them to start their missionary work to the Gentiles in Cyprus. And we do need to recall that the gospel had come to the Jews of Cyprus already. So the title of the sermon may be a little bit misleading. The gospel had already come to Cyprus. We see in Acts eleven nineteen. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. So according to Acts eleven nineteen, the church had already been planted. A church has already been planted in Cyprus, but there's no indication that the effort in this journey focuses on those likely pre-existing churches. Evangelism is their main concern, and evangelism to the Gentiles, because they know that is their mission, is to the Gentiles. So when they get to Salamis, even though their mission is to the Gentiles, as is Paul's habit, we'll see, he goes to the synagogue first. When they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. So they attended straightway to their calling. They go immediately to preaching, and they preached the word of God, but they did begin with the Jews, and that we'll see Paul doing this throughout his time in the book of Acts. Even though he is the apostle to the Gentiles, he preaches to the Jews. Now, Salamis is an important Jewish town. It's got multiple synagogues there, that coastal harbor town. I think it's worth noting that no mention is made of the response to the gospel preaching in Salamis. Was it good? Was it bad? We don't know. But mention is made here by Luke that John Mark, the relative of Barnabas that we've discussed before, is still with them. He's called their aide, perhaps their apprentice, and he's being a help to them. Commentary says John Mark is their assistant, their helper, perhaps even an apprentice. And the key idea here is that he's serving. He's rendering help to another. What he does is not specified. We don't know exactly how he helped. Also, some theorize that Mark is likely an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry, something that Barnabas and Saul may not have been. So then they go from Salamis to Paphos. They've preached the gospel in the synagogues to the Jews there on the eastern part. And now they make their way across the island. The text simply says, now when they had gone through the island to Paphos. So Luke chooses not to tell us the details of what happens along the way. But we can assume that they're preaching the gospel as they go. They traveled across the length of the island from east to west finally coming to Paphos, the large western port town where the seat of Roman government on the island existed at that town. This was a a senate province, not an imperial province, and there were differences in how they would be ruled. The city included all the typical architecture and culture of the day, things we've discussed before with amazing amphitheaters and uh, multiple temples to pagan gods 
and goddesses. As you know, the Romans know how to build. You can go online and you can see pictures of these structures still standing, not all of the structures standing, but large portions still standing there on the island of Cyprus. <clears throat> Commentary says, the comment in verse 6a summarizes the missionary work of Barnabas and Saul in the cities on the southern coast of Cyprus, Kition, Amethos, Neapolis, Curion, and Paphos. The verb translated as traveled from place to place, and the phrase the whole island <laughs> suggests missionary work was ongoing. In 8.4, the same verb conveys the meaning of missionary activity. The distance from Salamis to Paphos is about 112 miles. That's worth, again, considering what they went through on their travels. Assuming that private travelers walked about 15 to 20 miles per day, the journey from Salamis to Paphos involved seven days of walking, a period that does not include longer stays in the cities through which they passed. So you can imagine they had their pack and they were traveling and they where they got their food, where they stayed, we don't know. It's not mentioned. We can only guess that their food and lodging, maybe it came from local hospitality they received from strangers, or maybe they connected with some of the Christians that would have been there on the island that perhaps they knew about. Or did they receive aid from Barnabas' uh, connections there on the island, his family, his friends? They probably had some connections that they relied upon across the island, but we don't know, do we? Did they see conversions as they preached through the island? Luke doesn't tell us, but Barnabas and John Mark do return later after Paul and Barnabas have their falling out over John Mark. Barnabas and John Mark come back. We're told by the commentary that the return of Barnabas and John Mark in about AD 49 back to Cyprus, that's in chapter 15, indicates perhaps that there were churches on Cyprus which they wanted to visit and to help in their church ministry, just as Barnabas had gone from Jerusalem to Antioch to assist the newly founded church there. So we don't know the outcome of their preaching and their missionary work across the island, but likely there was some fruit there. Well, uh, wow, Bar-Jesus, Elymas, opposes the gospel. Listen to this again. They found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. <clears throat> so, let's look at this man, Bar-Jesus, also called Elymas. He's neither a follower of Jesus, nor is he a wise man. He's a foolish tool of the devil. Bar-Jesus, the irony, means son of Jesus. And Elymas, again, the irony means wise man. Now, he is called a sorcerer, which means a person skilled in the use of incantations with the goal of influencing or controlling transcendent powers to overcome public or private problems. This type of activity is explicitly forbidden in the Old Covenant writings, and faithful Jews would not have tolerated this behavior. He's also called a false prophet. This is a person who appealed to divine authority for his pronouncement, but whose claims have been rejected as false. An evaluation of his status that might come from the local existing Jewish community, so perhaps he was known as a false prophet already, <clears throat> and or that may be the result of Saul's confrontation that took place there. So he's claiming to have power and word from God, but he's lying. In fact, he's engaging with demonic elements, and this is the source of his knowledge and his power. He's called a Jew. What does this mean? Well, likely it means that he's of Jewish descent, but not necessarily a member in good standing of the local Jewish community who, as I've said, probably would not have approved of his involvement in this magic, this obviously unscriptural behavior that he was engaging in. This phrase here, with the proconsul, it says that Elymas Bar-Jesus was with the proconsul. Likely he was some sort of advisor <coughs> to the Roman leader, similar to 
what we see with the magicians in Pharaoh's court in the book of Exodus. <clears throat> Commentary says it appears that Bar-Jesus was in the service of the Roman proconsul. He was probably his court astrologer. Now, what did he do when the gospel came to Sergius Paulus? We're told two things. First, he withstood them. That is, he set himself against them. He resisted. He opposed what they were doing. He was against Saul and Barnabas. This court astrologer, we can speculate, likely sees the gospel message and Saul and Barnabas as threatening to end his services to the proconsul. We don't know if he knew what their future plans were, if he saw them as personal threats to his position that he held there. But for whatever reason, he withstood them. And this text tells us that he not only withstood the ideas, but he withstood Paul, Saul at this point, Saul and Barnabas. What did he do? He was focused on trying to turn the proconsul away from faith in Christ. Now, I want you to think about the evil of this activity. What can be worse than actively seeking to turn an eternal soul away from the gospel. This is to participate with the devil of hell. That's what this is. And I'm sure you can think of many voices, many institutions in today's world that are guilty of this sin, seeking to turn people away from faith in Christ. Commentary says he opposed them. He argues against the truth of the faith in Jesus as Israel's Messiah and Savior, whom the missionary are there proclaiming. He made the sustained attempt to turn away the proconsul from accepting the missionary's message and coming to faith in Jesus. So this was over time he continued to resist the message. If the preaching of the gospel in Paphos had already led to some conversions, this Jewish magician would have realized that accepting faith in Jesus as Israel's Messiah would bring the proconsul's willingness, perhaps eagerness, to receive guidance through magical incantations and rituals to an end. The, this magician, being a Jew, understanding enough of the message, saw the Old Testament foundations, likely saw the Old Testament foundations that Jesus is the Christ and the ethical requirements to reject sorcery would have been before his eyes. So what about Sergius Paulus? So here he is. He's been appointed there as the Lord over this island by the Roman Senate. <clears throat> and it's interesting, the, the Senate regions did not require a standing army to be present, whereas part of what defined an imperial region was that they had to have troops present. They were under direct, immediate control of the emperor. So about Sergius Paulus, this appointed leader under the Senate, the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So here we have two different kinds of unbelievers, don't we? You know, we can't just think that all unbelievers are the same. That's just, uh, that's just too simplified in thinking. The Lord works in various ways in people's hearts and minds over time. <clears throat> we see this one man, Bar-Jesus, Elymas, long down the path of hardening his heart against God. Whereas we see Sergius Paulus is an open-minded individual, ready and willing to learn. Proconsul means, uh, it's, it's translated with the Latin proconsul, is the standard term for the head of the government in a senatorial province. So this particular term, that's what it references. Now he's called intelligent. This means having understanding, someone who's wide, someone who's learned. So he's studied a lot and he's also rational. It means to be careful in your decision making. Commentary says the Greek term generally denotes human intelligent discernment, the ability to judge, not a prerequisite for becoming proconsul, of a senatorial province, but certainly an advantage for a man in such a position. The term intelligent does not describe him, does not <clears throat> describe him as a God-fearer. He was evidently a pagan. The first polytheist that Christian missionaries have contact with in Acts. So the gospel is coming to 
the Gentiles here before us. Even Cornelius was a God-fearer already. He had come to believe in one God as a God-fearer. So what does he do? This intelligent man summons Barnabas and Saul for the purpose of hearing the word of God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you or if one of us in here or, or if, if me, if, if we got a call from our, our local politician or from our, our senator said, hey, listen, I'd like for you to come and, and share the word of God with me. This is what's happening here. <clears throat> in contrast to the belligerent unbelief of Elemas, Sergius Paulus is an unbeliever open to hearing and considering the gospel message. I mean, think of it. You would have seen him there in his Roman attire and his polytheistic culture that he's in. And that certainly would have... Who, who wouldn't be like, I doubt he really wants to hear the gospel. So we can't judge a book by its cover. We have to be ready to go where God has worked in someone's heart. We don't know what God has done in someone's heart beforehand, do we? I want us to know the Lord's common grace can make even unbelievers reasonable and civil and willing to hear the gospel and can even cause unbelievers to be reasonable and civil men even as political rulers. What great grace this is. Especially given, and in the background we see this, larger overarching principle, the demonic focus on controlling political rulers. How gracious of God to protect Sergius Paulus from this man and his influence and from the demonic hordes that were likely flying about there in that location. So, Saul, also called Paul, is filled with the Spirit and responds. Listen to the word. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. So, first of all, let's look at how Luke switches to Paul instead of, instead of Saul. And we'll see throughout the remainder of the book of Acts, with I think just a very few exceptions, he's called Paul from this point forward. So, there's a lot that can be said, but the simplest, most likely reason is that Paul was likely Saul's Roman name. Okay, that was likely his Gentile name. And now that his ministry to the Gentiles is fully underway, his Roman name, Paul, takes the preeminence from this point forward in his ministry. That is the most likely reason why we see him called Paul from this point forward. There, there could be other reasons. Some have speculated that he took his name from Sergius Paulus as some honorarium for the victory of the gospel in that moment. Though, we don't know for sure exactly why. But we do know that this is a Roman name. This is not a, a Hebrew name. And it's common that back then they'd have those two names. Now, next, we see that Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. So what follows is the divinely inspired work of a prophet whom God has granted divine discernment, words, and power to pronounce immediate judgment. You, you none of us can look into the heart of another individual and speak with this kind of confidence about what's going on inside of them like Paul does. Paul is given God's vision of the insides of this man. Paul is given God's pronouncement of judgment upon this man. Commentary says, filled with a holy zeal against a professed enemy of Christ, which is one of the graces of the Holy Ghost, a spirit of burning, filled with power to denounce the wrath of God against him, which is one of the gifts of the Holy Ghost, a spirit of judgment. He felt a more than ordinary fervor in his mind. What Paul said did not come from any personal resentment, but from the strong impressions which the Holy Ghost made upon his spirit. So Paul speaks with a confidence upon this particular individual that is only available via divine inspiration. Now, in our encounters with evil of this kind, we can speak with a confidence arising to this level, approaching this level. Well, we can't speak with this kind of confidence. You're going to be blind because of what you've just done. That we can't speak with that kind of confidence. We can say, you appear to be a son of the devil. 
You appear to be an enemy of all righteousness. You appear to be filled up with deceit and fraud and malice. Full of all deceit and fraud as a son of the devil. He's always going and perverting the straight ways of the Lord. And that question, will you ever stop perverting the straight ways of the Lord? That, in a sense, is his call to repent. That is the gospel message laid out there for him. He's an evil man. And the words mean he is intentionally deceitful in order to achieve personal gain. He's a con artist, like Satan himself, knowing what he's doing and doing it for personal gain. Not partially. He's not just kind of gone down this path. He's filled up with these devilish ways. Commentary says, This Elemis, though called Bar-Jesus, the son of Jesus, was really a child of the devil, bore his image, did his lusts, and served his interests. John 8, 44 speaks of this. In two things he resembled the devil as a child does his father. First, in craftiness. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. And Elemis, though void of all wisdom, was full of all subtlety, expert in all the arts of deceiving men and imposing upon them. And secondly, not only in his craftiness, but in his malice. He was full of all mischief, a spiteful, ill-conditioned man, and a sworn, implacable enemy to God and goodness. Note now. A fullness of subtlety and mischief together make a man indeed a child of the devil. This is a frightful place to be. This is, if you will, an individual hardening their own heart and God hardening their heart and and them cooperating with God in this anti-sanctification process that takes them down the path of lawlessness and becoming an enemy of all righteousness by doing so. Think of this. This makes this evil man an enemy of God and an enemy of all righteousness. To be the devil's child is to be God's foe at every turn. Think of it. How many people have you met that in everything they did, they are a foe of God and his righteousness at every point? Wow. That's how far down the path this this fellow is. The heart this far gone, this thoroughly hardened will resist every righteousness and pervert every straight way of God while simultaneously saying, this is of God. This is of the Lord. I'm here to help you. This is for your good. He's an adversary to heaven, the commentary tells us. If he be a child of the devil, it follows, of course, that he is an enemy to all righteousness, for the devil is so. Note, those that are enemies to the doctrine of Christ are enemies to all righteousness, For in it, all righteousness is summed up and fulfilled. So, inspired not only with with not only divine knowledge of the extent of wickedness within Elemis, but also with the knowledge of God's judgment to come upon this sorcerer, Paul openly declares that the hand of the Lord is against him and tells him right there, that he's about to be temporarily blinded. It was a suitable punishment, the commentary says. He shut his eyes, the eyes of his mind, against the light of the gospel, did he not? And therefore justly were the eyes of his body shut against the light of the sun. He sought to blind the deputy as an agent of the God of this world, and therefore is himself struck blind. Yet, think of it, it actually was a moderate punishment. He was only struck blind when he might most justly have been struck dead. And it was only for a season. And he's told on the front end that it was only for a season. Think of someone saying, you're going to be blind. And then you're blind, but you don't know how long. So there's a mercy even in the judgment of God that he knows that he's not going to be, tempor- not going to be permanently blinded. So what happens? He's blinded. And immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. The one who claimed to see, the one who claimed to be a guide for others, what is he doing now? He's groping. And he's now going about trying to find somebody else to help him because he can't see. 
Now, we don't know if he ever repented. The text doesn't tell us. But the story leaves room for that possibility. Unlike some of the permanent judgments that we've seen in Acts, can you think of any? Can you say Ananias? Can you say Sapphira? Can you say Herod eaten by worms? So, in, in the, on the scale of Acts-level judgments of God, this is, this is down here <laughs> compared to what happened up here. And in fact... There's even some suggestion that maybe he did become a Christian because who else in the book of Acts hated and opposed the gospel and was blinded temporarily? Saul himself. So there's certainly this suggestion that perhaps Elymas goes on and is saved, but we don't know. So Sergius Paulus, there's a different plan for him. God saves him. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, we need to think about this. The great miracle draws the proconsul to believe the gospel. So what he saw happen, right? He, he may have seen this man, Elymas, do some things that would have caused him to respect this man and his power, right? He's a, he's a sorcerer. He had demonic connections. He may have actually demonstrated some power to him like Pharaoh's magicians did in Pharaoh's court. But he sees this man blinded. He sees this man reduced, humbled, and it gets his attention. It's as if he's saying, wait a minute, whoever the gods of this man are, are nothing compared to the God of these men. So the miracle draws him to believe, but really notice this. What is he most astonished with? The teaching of the Lord. The teaching of the Lord, even more than the miracle that he saw. I hope that we'll all note this. The glorious gospel, brothers and sisters, the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is more astonishing than even great miracles used by God to draw men to himself. When we have the opportunity to present the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, therein is the power of God. And when people come to believe this gospel and they consider who God is and what He has done, this is astonishment. The one who spoke the world into existence gives hearing to a deaf man. That's astonishing. But what can be more astonishing than He would become flesh and die? and suffer under the weight of our sin. Oh, herein lies astonishment. That the Creator of the universe, in all of His glory and might, would humble Himself. Herein is to be astonished. So we see Sergius indeed is an intelligent man by God's grace. So Luke ends the episode with the conversion of the proconsul Sergius Paulus, who believed, who came to faith in Jesus, whose life, death, and resurrection, Paul and Barnabas proclaimed as the Word of God. See, this is what he heard. He heard about Jesus. He heard about Jesus as the Messiah. He heard about the death upon the cross and the resurrection from the dead and the ascension to the right hand of God and that Jesus, through His death on the cross, cross brings the remission of sin and that we can repent and be forgiven. This is the message he heard. And his conversion is initially connected with the punitive miracle that had blinded his court astrologer, but is then related to his reaction to the teaching about the Lord which caused him to be amazed. May God bless us to always be astonished with his gospel. Do our hearts not need to be always reminded and warmed of this great and glorious reality that we've been brought into? All right, so some principles to consider in summary from this text and some thoughts for us that by God's grace perhaps these truths will be brought into our minds and hearts and expressed in our lives so first missions evangelism outreach brothers and sisters it is a fruit of fasting and prayer and worship if we go in our own power and our own strength we're like Joshua and the first attempt at the city of Ai what happened there They lost. Next, missions, evangelism, outreach is a work 
of God the Holy Spirit in and through his people. It is a work of God the Holy Spirit in and through his people. It's not, it's not our power. It's not our plan. It's not our work. It's not up to us. He doesn't save us and then just throw us to the wolves and say, go do what I told you. It is his work. It is his plan. It is his guidance. It is his power. It is his support. It is his presence in and through each and every moment. It is a work of God the Holy Spirit in and through his people. Next, the gospel goes out by the physical movement of real people from one place to another. They have boots that get worn out. They have bags that need to be replaced. They have sails that probably tear. And they have boats that need to be kept in order. These are real people with real travel from one place to another for the purpose of being face-to-face, not Zoom-to-Zoom, but being face-to-face with people to share the gospel with them and to be present and to witness the power of God and to give witness. If a miracle occurs, this is a witness to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, face-to-face. You have to remember that. sort of means people moving and going to where the people are who don't know the gospel. Next. This work of missions will be grueling. Are we thankful for telephones and internet and email and text messaging? Can the gospel proliferate more quickly as a result of this? Yes. Can it replace face-to-face? No. So in today's world, it's not super grueling. Maybe it is for some. It's not super grueling to get on an airplane and fly to another part of the world and go and be face-to-face. I mean, imagine what they would have had to have gone through to go to South Sudan or to go to Nigeria or to go to Kenya or to go wherever. But it is grueling. I mean, it's, it's a long flight, isn't it, son? Right? I mean, it's, the flights can be long and the process can be grueling. So we need to realize that. And, and when we look at our own lives and the calling that we might have by God's grace to go and to connect with others who've not heard the gospel, we should expect to have challenges that have to be overcome in that process. Next. In John Mark, we see an example of a helper who's being helpful but who doesn't finish what was started. So there's a lesson there for us. He, He got some good grades there on Cyprus, but something went wrong, and he goes home. He goes back to Jerusalem. Um... I remember talking to Kevin Swanson one time, and I don't know if this is true of John Mark, but it is a principle we need to consider. I said, tell me about folks who come there and you get to disciple them. He says, Matt, a lot of these homeschool boys just want their mommy. They just want their mommy, and they just need to grow up and be ready to be men in this world. Now, was that the case for John Mark? I don't know. But we do need to, all of us, say to God and be ready for him to take us anywhere he wants us to be and do with us whatever he wants to do with us. All of us. Next. Gospel efforts will face various forms of resistance. Gospel efforts will face various forms of resistance. So let that sink in. We must be prepared for this reality and not, I'm preaching to myself, and not grow discouraged. Right? Woe is me. And not grow discouraged, but rather by faith continue forward in obedience in the calling that God has given to us. Resistance is evidence of gospel work. Let that sink in. If you don't have any resistance to what you're doing, are you presenting the gospel? Are you living the gospel? Expect resistance, trusting. Now here it is that the Lord will defeat all of his enemies by his power. You get discouraged, go to Acts 13. Read this story and see what God did. Remember who God is. Remember what he does to those who resist him and try to keep people from hearing his gospel. Remember who we serve. Remember his power. Remember his promises. Remember his glorious gospel. And be confident and do not be discouraged. This, this is a wonderful text for those who are discouraged in ministry.
So go here, read this. Next. We can trust the Lord will supply the needs of his laborers. We can trust that the Lord will supply the needs of his laborers. Seek first the kingdom of God, right? And all these things will be added to you. When your life is devoted to his will, whether it be as a missionary in the first century or now, or whether it be as a non-missionary serving God in the place and the way that he's called you to serve him, the Lord provides for the needs of his laborers. This should encourage us all. We can release our cares to him. We can look to his coffers. We can look to his bank account. We can look to his treasures. We can look to his wealth. We can look to his love as our father. We can release all of our cares to him and we can chuckle at the IRS and we can chuckle at other forms of theft taking place in our world today because no one can steal from God. Amen. Amen. Next, I do want us to step back a little bit and remember this. With fasting and prayer, it's not right in today's text, but it's in the three verses prior. With fasting and prayer, significant demonic opposition to the gospel can be overcome. What did Jesus say? These kind, right? These kind. So I want us to remember how their calling occurred, the context, and I think it's no accident the connection between fasting and prayer and the just the easy conquest of this powerful man in the demonic realm. So, do we believe this? Do we think we face significant demonic resistance in today's world? So I think we need to consider more deeply, brothers and sisters, fasting and prayer. Now, Demonic conquest is not the only fruit of fasting and prayer. And it's not even as if we can see that Jesus was fasting and praying for the purpose of being ready to conquer demons. There's more to fasting and prayer than that. But I think we need to study this. I think, I know for our family, we need to grow up in fasting and prayer. And I wonder if our church, I wonder does your family need to grow up more in fasting What place does fasting have in your family life? How about our church? How can our church grow up in fasting? Deacon Willener and I are are praying about this and talking about this and wondering about how we might, by God's grace, learn more and lead more in this direction for our church. Next. Bold gospel responses to evil will be in order in certain situations. Bold gospel responses to evil will be in order in certain situations. There are times when we will need to stand up, especially us men, and say, you son of the devil, filled up with all deceit and malice, an enemy of all that is good and righteous, will you ever stop perverting the truth? There's a time where we will need to do that, and I can't help but think that that time is now. And that some of the places where this needs to be said are obvious, are they not, in what's going on in our world today. Now, when and where might you be called to speak in this regard? The Lord will lead you. Next, the occult is to be avoided as dangerous. Don't play Dungeons and Dragons, please. Don't expect me to be smiling if you tell me that you're going to play Dungeons and Dragons. As your pastor, I'm going to beg you to stop it. Okay? Stay away from Ouija boards. Stay away from the occult. These things are absolutely avenues by which demonic elements can trick you, deceive you, get a foothold in your own life and in your family. Okay? Now, does this mean that all fantasy novels are evil? I'm not saying that. So don't hear what I'm not saying. Okay? But there are certain activities that are clearly linked in with the occult, linked in with sorcery, linked in with necromancy, linked in with these things that are explicitly forbidden in Scripture. So, worth saying. Next. Leave room for God's work even in the hearts and minds of unbelieving political rulers. I need to hear this. Perhaps they will call us and ask us for the gospel. 
Maybe you might get a text message. Maybe you've been texting and texting and texting and you don't hear anything back. Who knows? Maybe you might get a text message. Maybe you might hear from your elected official that says, I'd like to hear the gospel from you. I'd like to hear the word of God from you. Seems like the craziest thing to think, doesn't it? Well, here's this polytheistic Roman proconsul who wants to hear the word of God. Brothers and sisters, let us pray with God's power and God's majesty in mind as we consider our political rulers. This text can encourage our faith when it comes to dealing with political rulers. Who knows what God will do? Do you expect conversions when you preach the gospel? I think that's another thing that comes for us, comes before us from this text. We should look for opportunities to share the gospel. We should expect that the Lord is going to give us opportunities to preach this astonishing truth. And we should expect to see people respond in faith. We should also expect to see Elemis and Bar-Jesus type out there as well. But we should expect also surprising examples of conversion. Not just, well, yeah, you could see that predictable person would hear the gospel. No, no. Surprising examples. The tattooed, the tattooed, crazed, you know, the hairs this way, and they got all kinds of bones and steel coming out of their face, and they look like hell, but they're on their way to heaven. The gospel is the power of God for everyone. So we all need to hear this, because I know, I don't know about you, it's easy to think, well, I'm not going to share the gospel here in this situation. Don't, don't, don't do that. Expect the door to be open and be prepared to preach the gospel when that door is open and expect conversions, brothers and sisters. Next, practically speaking, one thing that I hope that we'll do is that we'll pray for the people of the, of the island of Cyprus as a result of this. And it kind of opens up the idea of op- Operation World and the helpful information that is present through that ministry. They've got a prayer calendar and you can go uh, day by day, you can go week by week and pray for countries throughout the world and know the, the kind of statistics and from that you can infer the spiritual need. And Cyprus is, um, really um, needs our prayers. Uh, it's a, a place where there are a lot of people who are Christian, but um, are there biblical forms of worship taking place there regularly throughout the island? So let us pray also for the people of Cyprus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this text today. And we thank you for your encouragement to us from the word. We thank you that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is so astonishing. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us to faith in Christ and granting to us to love you and to serve you and to be hungry for you. Lord, we ask that you would work in us through this text to love you to serve you, and to be more like Christ. We do lift up to you, Lord, the people of Cyprus, and we ask you to bring a great revival and great conversions and faith towards Christ throughout the entire island. In Jesus' name, amen.